chapter 2. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2. I've got uh, two subjects tonight that I'm going to try to get to. More than likely, we will only get through one of them. Um, I've been doing a, a, a kind of a small uh, set of services uh, messages on Wednesday nights uh, regarding uh, passages of Scripture that are misunderstood or sometimes they're taken out of context or misused. And I want to deal with a couple of things that I don't know that uh, speci- the specific package, uh, passages are misused, but um, these are verses that and passages that sometimes people don't understand when they read them. They're, they're like, I'm not sure what that means, and, and it seems to be in conflict. Uh, I want to make a couple of statements, a few statements here to, to lay some groundwork. First of all, uh, we believe that uh, the old King James Version Bible, not the new one, but the old one, is not only uh, the inspired Word of God, which we've always held to that, but we also believe that it is inerrant and preserved without error for uh, English-speaking people, uh, those that can read and understand uh, English. This is the preserved, inerrant Word of God. And uh, that is important. If we have a Bible that is unsure, if we have even one word in it that we say that's not right, then we undermine the very authority that we hold to when we preach. And we don't have a ground to stand on. We've eroded the very foundation of what we're teaching. So we must believe that, first and foremost. We also believe that because it is inspired and inerrant, it's infallible, that it does not contradict itself. And it's interesting to me, uh, even people that are the most uh, convinced in their own minds and their own hearts about trying to study Scripture and rightly understand it and rightly divide it, uh, it's amazing how often... When we find a piece of Scripture that agrees with something we already believe, how we just stop looking. We don't go to Scripture anymore. We, we, hey, there's, this, there's the verse, and it supports what I believe, and so that's good enough for me. And then we don't search the Scriptures. And uh, the sad thing is, uh, oftentimes, not, I wouldn't say oftentimes, several times, we, are, we, we believe what we believe because of the groups of people that we identify with, the people we ha- hang around with or maybe identify with in fellowship. And, uh, and so we believe those things. And then we'll find the one verse or two verses maybe that we've heard preached on that, that seemingly support it. But then we come across other passages in Scripture in our reading and we'll go, well, that seems to be in conflict with what I hold to. And so I would, I would say this. I want to lay this down as a foundational premise on, on anything we deal with. That if there's a conflict, if there, if there is a passage that disagrees with this passage, it is not the passages that are in disagreement. It is our understanding of the passages that are in disagreement. And so we've got to then go back and we've got to be diligent. And we've got to do something that most of us don't really enjoy doing. And that is we've got to study. And yes, I know you thought you were done when you got out of high school or college. But the truth is, as a Christian, we ought to be studying. We ought to be searching the Scriptures. And it's amazing, sometimes we come across things that we've maybe held to for a long time. Maybe we were taught since we were in Sunday school. And we've heard many, many people teach and preach on it, only to find out 
that maybe that's not quite exactly what the Bible has said. And so we want to be careful. We want to be very, very careful about some things. And so I say all that to say this, that uh, sometimes in coming to understand a passage, one of the first questions we have to ask is, what does it not teach? (laughs) Because of other things that I know the Bible teaches, it can't be this because it would be in disagreement if it was this. And that's going to be the case tonight as we look at the first one. Let's look in Philippians chapter 2. And I want to go down to verse number 12 to begin with. And Paul writing, and it's interesting, church at Philippi was the first church that Paul established when he, uh, if you remember the Macedonian call, um, and he went over to Macedonia. It was the very first church that he planted. And out of all of the churches that he writes letters to in the New Testament, the church at Philippi is the only church that he does not uh, correct, that, that there's some issue that they're having that he's correcting them on. He does charge them and he does challenge them in some things, but there's nothing that he has to say that you're doing this wrong and you need to change it. And um, so he does teach them some good things and some doctrinal things, and I think it's very, very beneficial to us. But the church at Philippi was a very solid church, very, very solid in their doctrine uh, and in their practice. And uh, we get to verse number 12, and he says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure." And uh, I, uh, I want to make sure that we're very clear on what this verse is not saying and then what it is saying. I've had people ask me this even in recent months, people that are in the area that know us. Uh, and they say, Doesn't that, isn't that talking about working our salvation and getting our salvation by our works? And that is not what is being said here. Uh, it's not saying that we have to work in order to be saved. You say, how do you know that? Because if it was saying that, it would be in conflict with other passages of Scripture that says that it's not by our works. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, many of you can quote that. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Turn with me if you will. Hold your place in Philippians 2. We're going to come back there. But let's look at a few passages tonight. Uh, Let's go to Galatians chapter 2. And uh, verse number 16, Galatians chapter 2, and uh, verse number 16. Uh, Paul uh, writes to the church at Galatians, he says, Knowing, he doesn't say we think or we suppose, he says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the what? Works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall few be justified, several, some people, those that are really sincere. Now, what does the Bible say? By the works of the law shall what? No flesh be justified. We know that, I mean, Paul can't get much clearer than this idea that we are not saved by works. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here uh, on Wednesday night that we should have this matter settled. But I want you to be able to give an answer if somebody brings this passage in Philippians chapter 2 to you and it seems to be confusing. And you're like, well, maybe, I kind of see that. Maybe it is talking about works. We know that it's not talking about our works for salvation. 
because it would conflict with other scriptures. And because of our premise thoughts that we've sat, established at the onset, our Bible is infallible and it is inerrant. That's not a mistake. It is not in conflict and neither is it contradicting itself. So that being the case, what does it teach? And so we're going to take a look at a few of these things tonight about what it does teach. In order for us to understand a passage, there are three rules to follow. Number one, we've got to know the context. Number two, we've got to know the context. And number three, we've got to know the context. And once you've done the first three rules, then there's some other rules you can follow. But context is that important. It has to be the primary thing. So the way we know context is we look at things that precede it and follow it, and we kind of see what the setting is that that statement was made in. What was he talking about when he made this statement? So let's go back, first of all, and uh, look in chapter 1. And I want to I start by going to the very first verse. First of all, who is he writing to here? Who is he writing to? Let's look in verse number 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the what? Saints. Notice uh, he's saying uh, in, in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi. Notice he doesn't address them as the church that's at Philippi, but he says, I'm writing to all the saints that are at Philippi. We do not find anywhere in Scripture where God calls an unregenerate person a saint. It's not found in Scripture. The only people that are found to be called saints in Scripture are those that have trusted Christ as their Savior. Their sins have been washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they've been forgiven of their sins, and they've been given eternal life. And uh, so he's writing to the saints. He's writing to Christians. Uh, So why would he be saying you need to work in order to get saved if they're already saved? So, So again, we're starting to maybe see right at the very onset uh, maybe the direction he's heading. That is probably not talking about their salvation, but maybe the things that are to be done after salvation. So let's look at a few other things here. He gives some edification to the church. Let's look in verse number 3. He said, I thank my God, uh, chapter 1, verse number 3. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for, for you all making requests with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Uh, being confident of this very thing, that he, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So what was the good work that the Lord Jesus Christ had begun into him that he was going to continue to perform? Salvation, right? They are already saved. This is not something they have to do to get saved. They are already saved. God has already done this good work in them. And he's going to continue to do it until uh, we get to heaven. He's going to keep us sealed. He's going to keep us saved. And we don't have to worry about losing it. Uh, so he gives a, 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 a charge to them. As we get down to verse number uh, 9, he says, And this I pray. So these are the things that he's wanting to charge them and encourage them in and kind of um, edify them in and strengthen them in. He says, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge. Now, when you read that phrase, he doesn't just say that your love may abound, but he says that your love may abound more and more. Could we say that that sounds to you like he's speaking here of growth in the Christian life? That whatever it is today, tomorrow it will be more. And the day after that, we want it to be more again. So again, we're not dealing here with things that have to be done to be saved. We're dealing with the fruit that is borne out because of our salvation. So he's setting this, this, this foundation here. He says in verse number 
9, I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. So there's three things here. He says, I want you to abound more and more in love. I want you to abound more and more in knowledge. And I want you to abound, uh, abound more and more in judgment. And so these areas at least, God, uh, Paul is charging him, saying, I want you to, to grow in these areas. I want you to get, get, get further along in the Christian life. That ye may approve things that are excellent. That ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of, Jesus, uh, of Christ. This sounds to me like he's wanting them to grow so that their testimony can be what it ought to be. That they can approve all things that are excellent, that's going to be their desire, and that they be sincere and without offense till the day of, of Christ. Being filled, notice this, with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. If they had not already been saved, they would not be bearing the fruits of righteousness. So, so we kind of get this idea where Paul is heading here at the early part of this letter. Now let's look down in verse number 20. And Paul is going to use a personal illustration. After he charges them to grow in these things, to abound more and more in them, then he gives a little bit of a personal uh, illustration, a personal example. And he says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be what? magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So he's dealing here with uh, living, walking in the Spirit, living the Christian life. He's dealing with the fact that uh, Christ needing to be magnified in his body, whether it be through his life or his death. And so he uses this kind of as a picture, an illustration, example, if you will, for them. As we get down, and I'm only going, you can read the whole chapter and you'll see that all of this fits. I'm not, I'm not skipping to get the, out of the context here, but for sake of time, let's look in verse number 27. Because now that he's given his testimony or his exampleship of things, uh, he tells them in verse 27, only let your conversation. So first of all, he talks about uh, Christ being magnified in his body. Now he says, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. In other words, the way you live, it ought to reflect the things that are written in this book. That's what he's telling them. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit. That's a work of righteousness, by the way. With one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He, again, he's charging them. He's saying this is the way your life ought to be. It ought to reflect the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It ought to be that which becometh the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, and he tells them, he says, you need to be standing fast in one spirit, the steadfastness of it. And what is that one spirit that we stand in? The leading of the Holy Spirit, who indwells each of us as believers. There ought to be a unity there, because the Holy Spirit is not against himself. And so there ought to be one spirit. Uh, and then he says, with one mind. And because we study the same book, we understand the Scriptures the same way, we ought to be of one mind of things. And then he says this, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We ought to be single-hearted, single-minded, steadfast in this thing. We ought to be striving together for the faith of the gospel. That ought to be what characterizes our Christian life. Notice he goes on in verse 28, "...and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation..." That of God. In other words, if we're not terrified by our adversaries, that is a testimony 
of the very fact that we're saved. He, sees, he goes through all of this. And then he says, uh, in verse number, uh, chapter number 2, he says, if, if there be what? What's the fourth word here? If there be what? Therefore. So he's continuing on the foundation they laid in chapter 1. Uh, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, and any uh, fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill you my joy, that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And so he uses these first four verses here to say, listen, these are things that ought to characterize you now that you are saved. You're a saint. Christ has done this work in you. He's going to continue to perform it. And because of that, you need to live a certain way. And then he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to speak of the mind that Christ had. Christ, and he specifically deals with this in this passage. He speaks, specifically deals with the fact that Christ had a mind of humility first and obedience even to the death of the cross second. Humility and obedience. This is the mind that Paul says you need to have in you. He goes on to say, and being found in verse number 9 of chapter 2, he says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, speaking of Christ, and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, so let's stop there for a moment because we're just now coming to our verses. So everything Paul has dealt with up to this point is dealing with how we're to live now that we're saved. He's used the word therefore already once. And now we come to verse number 12. And what is the very first word we look at? Wherefore? He's not done yet. Paul is a master of the run-on sentence. He writes letters that never end. They just keep going and going and going like the Energizer money. Wherefore, he's still continuing this thought of how they should live. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always, what? Obeyed. Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And here's the argument that some people will say when they read that verse. And they'll say, well, that deals with working and hoping that you're saved, and you better do it with fear and trembling because you might not make it. And that they use this phrase, with fear and trembling, uh, as their support for why this teaches works salvation. Can I tell you that is not what the fear and trembling is about? Let's, again, look at the passage. Uh, isn't it amazing? We don't have to guess what somebody believes about something. We can just read the Scripture. It'll tell us. What is it that Paul was warning them about that they needed to be doing this with fear and trembling. I mean, it sounds to me like we should just be able to live our testimony in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Why do I have to be fearful of it? Why do I have to be trembling about it? Why is this, is this really that serious of a matter? According to Paul, it is. According to Paul, our testimony is so crucial that he says, if you're not able to fulfill this testimony... You need, to, you need to put such diligence to it that you're fearful of not being able to, 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 to have a testimony that's Christ-honoring. You, you need to be in such a way that, that uh, you are... Um, he tells us uh, in, in verse number 12, 
he says that we're to work this, this out of our salvation, this, these fruits of our salvation, we're to work them out with a sense of fear and even to the point of saying, uh, I, I'll tremble if I'm not able to do this. Why? Because look what he says as we get to verse 13. He says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings that ye may be, what's the next word here? Blameless and what? Wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Back up. Does that mean that if my testimony is not Christ honoring, if I'm not giving diligence to make my testimony follow this book, is Paul telling me that that is harmful in some way? Sure sounds like it, doesn't it? Notice what he says, verse 15, that she may be blameless. Blameless in whose eyes? Well, blameless in the eyes of people that are brothers and sisters, I think, is important. But which one would we cause harm to? If our testimony is not what it should be, our testimony can cause harm to brothers and sisters in Christ around us and to those that are lost. It can actually cause harm. We're living in a day where churches are teaching, hey, it doesn't matter how you live. As long as your heart's right and you're sincere, God knows your heart, and they use that phrase, and it doesn't matter about the outside, it absolutely does. Our Bible teaches this, that it is something that can be harmful. And Paul says, look, if you can't work out your salvation this way, if you can't have this fruit, then it's something that could be harmful. Notice he goes on to say this, that you be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, where? In the midst of the church, in the midst of brothers and sisters in Christ, in the midst of the saints? No, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. You say, how do you know that that's what he's talking about? Because he finishes the sentence with this. Among whom ye what? Shine as lights in the world. This is what he's talking about. He's not talking about earning our salvation. He's talking about our testimony and the, the, the dire importance of it. We're living in a day where we have so minimized the importance of testimony. We've just said, you know what, it doesn't matter how you live. Go out here and live. You can do what you want to. In, in a week or two, I don't even know when the date is, there's going to be churches that are going to schedule their church services around a football game. What kind of a testimony is that? There are going to be things that we come across in our life daily that we've got to be on guard against. And we say, well, it's no big deal. Yes, it is. The Bible says it's harmful. We're to be a light that shines in a crooked and a perverse world. Notice what else he says here, verse number 16. What are we supposed to be doing? Holding forth the word of life, that, it, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in what? Vain, neither labored in vain. Could it be that all the work that we attempted for the Lord Jesus Christ could be in vain if our testimony is not what it should be? That sure seems to be what Paul's saying here. He's saying, it's my responsibility. And in doing this, he's telling the church at Philippi, each and every one of you, it's the responsibility of those that are saved to hold forth 
the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. What is the word of life? John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. We're to hold Him forth. I, I, love, I love history. I love reading history. And I wrote a couple of uh, examples of men over the years that were heroic uh, in historical things of battles and wars that were done. In the Civil War, in May of 1862, there was a fellow by the name of uh, James Young. And uh, it was written of him in, in 1862. They said this about him. He raised the colors twice from the ground and was twice shot down. Samuel Ch- Chandler, who had been wounded in the leg and the arm with wounds bleeding, crept out to the flagstaff and with great effort raised it the third time. In a moment, he too was shot in the breast and fell. Frank Shutt of Company G then raised it. The flag was pierced by 40 bullets when the battle was done. These men were so careful and so diligent and so uh, determined to raise the standard, to hold it forth, because it meant the rising and the falling of the battle. The men that were following were looking to the banner and they were seeing where they were supposed to be and the place that they were supposed to be in, and the, the, they were fighting for the cause and it stirred them on to victory. And these men understood the importance of holding forth a flag in front of a battle. Two months later, there was another battle that took place and a young man by the name of James Hickok, uh, who was uh, after four color bearers had been shot down, he asked permission to go out and to carry the colors. Through subsequent, uh, he was subsequently wounded twice, and he refused to resign the flag into any other hands than those of the commanding officer who had entrusted the colors to him. We look at things like that, and our blood stirs, and especially if you're a man, you'd love to hear those kind of stories. Can I tell you this? It's about time for God's people to take the standard of holding forth the Word that was made flesh to this world, to be a light to the world, and to have this kind of diligence, and have this kind of sacrifice, and have this kind of a, of a determination. I'm not going to let this book fall. We're living in a day where it's being eroded, not just by the world, it's being eroded by our churches. And God's people need to stand up. Paul said, if you can't do it, it's harmful. It's creating problems. You're supposed to be a light. In this world, you're supposed to hold forth the word of life in this world. It's interesting to me that God chooses to use us to do this. I wrote this phrase down as kind of a concluding statement to wrap all this verse up. We're sinners by nature, and yet we are responsible to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our bodies as an example to those in a crooked and a perverse generation. Can I tell you, that's a very sobering responsibility. That God has entrusted a shell of a flesh that was, human, that was sinful by nature, that has only been saved by His grace. He's entrusted us to be that light. He's entrusted us to hold forth the word of life in a crooked and a perverse generation. And Paul said it this way 
He said, Among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. And then he said, That I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Can I encourage us tonight to, to, to get a little more determined that I'm going to work out my salvation? I've already got it. I'm going to work it out. I'm going to live the way that, that is not harmful to this world. I don't want to bring a reproach to the cause of Christ. And I certainly do not want to be responsible for someone in this world to fall away from the convicting power of the Holy Spirit of God or to become callous to it. I don't want to be the reason why people will look to the Bible and look to the things of the Lord and say, because of that man's testimony, I don't want to have any part of it. It's harmful. Paul says we're to do all these things without murmurings and disputings. That's the hard part to do, isn't it? We so quickly grumble about things, gripe about things. He says that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke. Who would rebuke us? The world. And by the way, they're doing it by the thousands. They're looking at people who profess Christ and then live like the world. And they are rebuking them for it, saying, we don't see any difference. No difference at all. I know we're, we're preaching to the Wednesday night crowd here. I don't know if you struggle with your testimony. I'll tell you this, if you have a flesh nature like I do, it still rears its ugly head up. It's still a battle. And I'll be real frank with you. I, I don't know if you get weary of it or not, but there are times I'm tired. There's times it just would be so much easier to just not have to fight it all the time. But there's a cause. There's something that is more important than me and how I feel. And I need to learn to hold that banner to hold forth the word of life in a crooked and a perverse generation. I need to shine as a light in this world. And I think, I think it'd do us well. I think it'd do us real well to know and understand this verse. I hope not only has it given us some understanding if somebody comes to us and tries to say that teaches us that we have to work in order to be saved. I hope we understand that clearly now from that passage. But more importantly, I hope we leave here tonight with the urgency of living a life that is pleasing to the Lord Jesus. Uh, Lord willing, next Wednesday, I did not get to our second subject. And I'm going to ask for you to pray this week. I kind of was, I had the notes ready tonight, and I've been praying about it for a long time, but I, I want to ask you to pray with me this week that God will help us as we teach and preach this, not only for our information here, but maybe there will be others that will help as well. But I'm going to teach on the, the issue of... Uh, predestination and election and God's foreknowledge and the free will of man. Uh, there's an awful lot of people who do not understand scripturally. Uh, there are a lot of people who believe uh, that God, God predetermines who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. That He selects and He plays a, a spiritual uh, eeny, meeny, miny, mo with people and, and you get to be saved and you don't. That is not what the Bible teaches. 
I'm not afraid of these passages. I think they're very clear and easily understood if you take them in their context. And I'm going to ask if you would to pray with me this week as we get, I want, we'll have another week here to pray on it and, and get, kind of prepare for that teaching. But Lord willing, if, if we're still here and the rapture hasn't happened by then, of course that'd be great too. If that happens, I'll let the Lord teach that lesson to us. Uh, he'll be better at it than I am. But uh, there's so many people that misunderstand that in the day that we live. So pray that God will use that next week and that we'll be able to teach it clearly and, and concisely and uh, that it will be helped to others. All right? Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed. Father, we're thankful for your word, and I pray that you will help to charge us and to challenge us from your word. Lord, may we learn, Lord, more and more as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of this book and your Holy Spirit uh, teaches and instructs and guides us in our lives. Lord, we, we learn how important it is.